This is the Real Lives Untold podcast with myself, Sarah O'Connor. And myself, Trina O'Connor. We're focusing on all things crime and human interest, creating a space for people to tell their stories, the raw, unedited version. Today, we are speaking to Dr. Nicola Fox Hamilton, a lecturer in cyber psychology whose research focuses on communication through technology. She also talks to us about the trials and tribulation of online dating, online behaviour, and how to monitor our children's use of smartphones. We want to apologise about the sound quality of this interview with Dr. Nicola Fox Hamilton. Unfortunately, the file wasn't backed up and had to be rebuilt. But Trina and I would hope that you stick with this episode as Nicola really does have some incredible insights and advice. And we will have her back on the podcast again. So, Sarah, today we have... Might I say the most beautiful doctor Absolutely. I've ever seen? My, My goodness. God, we have the gorgeous doctor Nicola. Just as well as cameras are on. So, um, Doctor Nicola Fox Hamilton is from the Institute of Art and Design and Technology, and you have done your PhD in your research, kind of focused on technology. And you also looked on online dating and that kind of thing. So. Being the only single woman here, I'm really quite <laughs> interested in that. So, um, and Orla, yeah, Orla as well, yes, yes. But I don't shout know. out to Orla, yeah, Orla who looks Orla. after us. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about um, yourself and um, your journey towards your PhD, and then we we'll take it from there. How does that yeah. sound? Sure, sounds yeah. good. Good. Uh, thank you. Very lovely intro. Um, so. I, my journey to the PhD wasn't exactly straightforward. It didn't take the traditional route. I studied as a graphic designer originally um, and worked in design and advertising and web design for quite a while and continued to do so even when I moved into the field of cyber psychology. But when the recession happened in 2007, eight, I got laid off uh, from advertising, which I was quite happy with and decided to do something different and went back to do a master's and IADT had a master's in digital media at the time, which I thought would be really interesting. <laughs> so I went to the open night and I overheard Dr. Ronnie Kieran talking about the master's in cyberpsychology, which sounded a lot more interesting and really caught my attention. And so I decided to do that. And I thought it would complement my skills as a designer and allow me to do consultancy work, which I did do some of that. But really what intrigued me and captivated me about cyberpsychology was that interaction between social psychology, how people interact, and technology. Mm -hmm. And when I was trying to come up with a research project for the masters, um, I'd (laughs) come back from LA and I was single. And um, I had tried online dating and I've had some experiences of non-online dating. And I was like, American men and Irish men are very different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wonder what that looks like if you study it in an online dating context where things are actually written down and they're presenting themselves and you kind of measure it in a way that is very difficult to do offline. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was what I did for my master's project. And Interesting. So you had to go out in the field and do some study. Yes. So I collected dating profiles from Plenty Fish, 150 Irish, 150 American men's dating profiles, and I compared them. So I used some language analysis. And to look at how they talked about themselves and their personality. Um, and it was interesting. So one of the most interesting things to me was that American men wrote three times as much as Irish men on average at the time. So this is back in 2010. Um, Tinder changed things because it made profiles a lot shorter overall. But at the time, this was pre-Tinder. Um, so 
American men were writing a lot more, which meant they were writing a lot more detailed things and mm. giving more information about themselves. But they were much more likely to write about their friends and family being important to them, which kind of suggests maybe agreeableness, being oriented towards other people, um, to talk about work being important to them, which might suggest maybe conscientiousness. Um, and I was looking at the, the various personality traits and there's certain language that is associated with personality traits. And the ones that are associated with um, psychoticism or higher in Irishmen. <laughs> oh my God. Which is, you know, less agreeable, maybe a bit more critical, uh, a little bit less warm. Um, but I think some of it comes down to the fact that they were writing a lot less about themselves. They were also much more likely to describe themselves as genuine and honest and trustworthy. This is the American guy. This is the Irish guy. And so the Irish, they're guys. less likely to get anyone contacting them. Yeah, if you write less about yourself. They were also more likely to say, you know, I hate having to do this. This is really difficult. Whereas American guys just yeah. put it out there. And, and they, that's a cultural thing. I think that's a cultural thing. And I think it's probably changed a bit since then. I mm -hmm. think dating culture in Ireland is a lot different to America. It's a lot newer than America. They've had a much more mature dating culture for a long time. It was acceptable to date multiple people for a long time there. That's a very, very new thing here. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you, I think you do see some change. Like when I did my PhD, um, so I enjoyed it so much in the masters that I went on to do PhD, which was a little less enjoyable. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's done now. Um, yeah. But the actual topic I was looking at was again how people talk about themselves in their dating profiles. And I asked people to write profiles for me, and I asked people to share their profiles. Um, and they were a lot shorter because Tinder came in while I was doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was what I was really interested in is so how people express their personality in their profiles and then whether other people can accurately perceive it or not. Because one of the things we know is really frustrating for people is they see somebody online, they have a bit of a chat with them, they meet in person and the person isn't quite what they expected. Yeah. And it's not always that the person's lying. Sometimes they're lying about small things, but that's not always it. Sometimes it's just that you've got a very limited framework in which to present yourself in online dating. It's a very shallow format in mm. a lot of ways. And so to get across the complexity of who you are, it's very difficult, very frustrating for people. And they look sometimes different as well. And they do. They, well, they pick the best and are people photos. Really they don't always actually post. <laughs> <laughs> or they're using filters. Or they're using right? filters. Are, are, are I seen a very funny one recently. I've seen a guy posing on his photograph and he said he was age 23 and the photograph was the twin towers behind him. You know, the two hours are gone since 2001, I think it was. was it? So he certainly wasn't 20. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? That's why photographs are great. It's much harder yeah. to lie through photographs than yeah. it is through words. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just such a fascinating area. Um, and what I found is that people are very bad at telling what somebody else is like from dating profiles. We're just really bad at it because there, isn't, there just isn't enough information. And people tend to present themselves in a positive way. They're not presenting the whole complexity of who they are. Um, and so it's quite difficult. And so really the best way to look at online dating, the first date, it's not really a first date. It's the final stage in filtering. Mm -hmm. You've kind of looked at their profile. They look okay. You have a chat. You make sure there aren't any obvious red flags initially. You meet quickly in person for something low investment. Make sure they are who they say they are yeah. and that there's a bit of chemistry and they actually kind of like them. And then you kind of go from there. So it's really a way to increase the number of people you have an opportunity to interact with. And so what did you find about people's, I suppose, sincerity being on those platforms that they really wanted to find a relationship? Like what was the, I suppose, percentage 
I, a I, lot I, of people do. It's it's surprisingly high. Um, even on platforms like Tinder, where the perception is still that it's a hooker platform and stuff, it's not really. Um, mm. So women's number one priority is to find a romantic partner and the second is sex. Men's is the opposite way around, but there's not a huge difference between the two. Mm-hmm. And even like some of the research has found that on Tinder, when people hook up, it will often turn into a relationship. It's not necessarily a bad way to start a relationship. You meet someone, you're attracted to them, you get along, and it's like, well, you know, let's meet again. And that can develop into something else. So lots of people meet there. It is a successful way to meet for a lot of people. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so popular. And it's the only way now, isn't it? Really, pretty much. It's very There's very little organic it's, dating, I'd yeah, imagine. Now. There still is some. So people tend to use it to supplement or complement offline dating. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they go out looking for someone on a night out, but you interact with and meet people in your daily life and people also meet that way. Mm-hmm. But it is now the number one way to meet long-term partners. Yeah. Well, there you have go. you ever tried it, Sarah? I did a long time ago. Was it plenty of fish? It was a plenty of fish, was a plenty of fish yeah. era. And it was it was so strange, you know, and all of that putting up a profile and uh, you know, chatting back and forth and not really knowing what they were like and it's so long now I can really remember but I do I did like I went on a few dates yeah. like and yeah but I didn't end up there was nothing long term out of any yeah. of them now but yeah same listen, here I, I was open to it. It and then met my husband yeah <laughs> it's pretty much the same yeah, yeah usually yeah. you can away with it. at least a couple of good stories I think yeah. that's like the, yeah. the positive of online yeah. dating I, I remember I went on a date from a, a dating website and the guy turned up and he was absolutely banjacked when he turned up I said, why are you so tired? He'd walked to meet me from Dundrum or something. And I was meeting in Brussels, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And then we sat and ordered a drink and all that night. I realised very quickly he had no money. So I ended up buying us a few drinks. And then I said to him, are you hungry? He said, I am. So I brought him to McDonald's. Oh my and then I gave him the money for a taxi home. I just felt so sorry mm-hmm. for him. Did you see um, him again? No. Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I just felt, oh, God, the commitment that he made. I he, know. You know, God love him. Um, and he was like, you're like me, mammy. And I was like, mm, yeah, yeah, that's kind of why I won't be seeing you again. Yeah. Thanks very much. It's not really what you're looking for. <laughs> but have you tried it a few times? Yeah, I did. Would you, are you still open to it? No, I don't do it now. Look, I get enough hassle on social media as there, there is, you, you know. Yeah. Um, so, no, I don't I don't put myself out there now. But, yeah. Um, um, yeah, it is difficult to meet people, particularly when you walk the hours I walk and that yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you look, the prince is only around the corner. Of course but, he is. As my mother always <laughs> said, it only takes one. It only takes one. <laughs> but maybe um, on that, Nicola, you could tell us a little bit about maybe catfishing and kitten fishing mm-hmm. and them kind yeah. of things that can happen yeah. on yeah. online dating. Yeah. So kitten fishing is probably much more common. That's where somebody is who they say they are mostly. But they've maybe used very good photographs and very filtered photographs or the exaggerated aspects of their life their job's a better job than they're currently doing they're wealthier than they currently are they do you know millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. More interesting things with her life than they, you know, so it's, it's exaggerating excessively mm-hmm. everybody exaggerates a little bit on dating sites um to market themselves essentially but this is taking it a bit too far yeah catfishing though is something quite different so catfishing is pretending to be somebody completely different other than who you are there's really limited research on why people do this the research that is there is more like you know women who pretend to be a different woman because they think their partner is cheating and they try and lure them in mm-hmm. or women who don't feel safe online dating and they pretend they use somebody else's photographs and a different name to try and protect their, 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 you know, their, their physical safety. But of yeah. course that's not very strategic for online dating when you actually want to meet somebody. Um, but the research on actual catfishers is quite lacking. There is some research analyzing the TV show catfish and there's some unpublished research looking at the motivations behind it. And what it seems is that it's a very broad range of motivations for why people catfish. It's not just one kind of person. Yeah. So what you might have is some people who cannot express who they are. Let's say you live in a rural southern state in America, which is very anti-LGBTQ, and you're trans um, or gay, and you cannot express that outwardly you might create an identity to try and find a way to express it online, to try and see if that part of you is real and to act it out in some way that feels safe. Now, that doesn't negate the effect of it on the other person that you're talking to. If you form a relationship and you're talking to somebody, that's still very distressing for them to find out that they're not talking to a real person or who they think they're talking to. But it's kind of understandable why somebody would do that. For some people, it's maybe that they feel very out of control in their life. Maybe they've had a bereavement, lost a job, something like that. This is a way to gain some control. Um, for other people, it's just exciting. It's a fun thing to do. For others, like there's some men who've described wanting to know what it's like to be a woman and to, you know, get nudes from women and things like that. They pretend to be a woman, so they'll message lesbians and, and stuff like that. That's not so understandable. Um, so there's, there's this really wide range of motivations. And then, of course, there's people who are trying to defraud somebody, get money out yeah. of them, stuff like that, which is very criminal behavior. Mm-hmm. So so the people who are impacted by catfishing, like huge, I, I'm sure there's a there's spectrum in terms of how badly yeah. they're, they're affected by it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we know, like from the research on romance scams, there's quite a body of research on that, less yeah. so on catfishing, but they're very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and the research on the victims of romance scams shows that it is very traumatic. Mm-hmm. And actually, for a lot of people, the most traumatic aspect of it is the loss of a relationship, not yeah. the loss of money. Now, the yeah. loss of money is, depending on how much they lost, if it's a lot of money, that's obviously a huge, huge problem for yeah. them. But the loss of a relationship that they had built up over sometimes years. Imagine. And that they feel is the best relationship they've ever had. Yeah. Because one of the things that scammers do, there's a whole grooming process with romance scams um, that's very like well-structured and well-laid out, designed to be very compelling. 
um, where they start love bombing the person at the start, much like an abusive relationship offline, um, which feels very overwhelmingly lovely. They're getting lots of compliments, declaring love very early, sometimes asking people to marry them very early, that kind of thing. Very intimate, texting, messaging all the time, all throughout the day, so kind of sucking up all their energy and time mm. so that they're removed from friends and family and support networks. Um, and and it can be more than one person doing this oh, romance. Can. Like, it's very yeah. organised. It's organised crime. It can be people so, do, doing shifts. So they're doing shifts, shifts yeah. Oh, and they've yeah. got a finder of yeah. a person and they follow. And one so, of the things... So no wonder that, they don't. A lot of people don't report it. The humiliation to start with. I know. You know. And, like, a lot of people don't realise what's happening. And the other thing is the scammer doesn't give away a lot of information about themselves because they keep track of whatever information they pretend is about them mm. which means that they listen and they ask questions which as women in the world you'll know doesn't often happen <laughs> in <your> relationships <laughs> often men don't ask questions women talk about going on dates where the man doesn't ask a single question yeah, yeah. so to have someone who's just seems genuinely oh, interested in everything you say thinks you're so smart so interesting that is very very compelling yeah and so they describe it as this incredible relationship where they've never felt so understood before. And then they find out it was all a scam. And sometimes there's a second wave of the scam where, you know, the police tell them it's a scam. They go back to the scammer and say, I can't believe this. They're angry. And the scammer will say, well, you know, where I'm from, there were no other options available to me. So initially, yes, I was scamming you because I worked for this organization. But then I actually found love with you. Yeah. And then they no, go back to go to the country and visit them and get robbed and all sorts of things mm-hmm. it's just so but it just shows how compelling but, the relationship but that, is. yeah but that whole thing about being heard and um, brings me back to another anecdote of my um, online dating i went on a date it was an afternoon day coffee and the guy sat for an hour and a half telling me about his life and didn't ask me one question right and i said to him hey listen i i have to go and he said to me, oh, before you go, I haven't even asked you, like, what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, I'm a criminologist. And he goes, oh, my God, <laughs> can you not tell me about that? I said, I oh, know, I've been here an hour and a half now, and it's the first question you've asked me, so I'm out here. And he was like, what? He couldn't believe it, because wow. he had literally talked for an hour and a half. Oh, yeah. And at the end, oh. what do you do? Who so, that? so that whole being heard thing, yeah. you can understand how somebody can be taken in by that. Mm. You know? And yeah. there's, like, a little bit of research that looks at, why people fall for these scams and like it was qualitative research and one woman talked about having so many negative experiences like that in online yeah. dating where the men were disappointing or rude or negative to them and then this person shows up and just seems great and that's that's it's understandable why people would fall for yeah, it yeah yeah and there's nothing to be ashamed there about really but i'm sure that no. they, they don't feel that no know? and the scammers are very very good at what they yeah do. they really professionals are. yeah yeah Absolutely. Yeah, but I do think as a woman, when something like that happens to you, you very often start to push push back on yourself yeah. by saying, I pick these people. Mm. Like why there's a pattern here. Yeah, the same yeah. kind of, you Absolutely. Know, um, I'm not being self-reflective at all there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you might tell us a little bit about some of the other stuff that happens online day. The misogynist behavior mm. that we see, we see very recent high profile cases mm. of this in the UK and in Romania. We won't mention the names, they're out there. Yeah. Maybe you might talk to us a little bit about that, Nicola, about yeah. how that happens, how it presents itself and, and, yeah. and what it does, particularly for young boys. Yeah. So it's something that's been growing for quite some time. Um, so if you think 
uh, like misogyny online has always been a feature of the online space. Uh, women, particularly women in the public eye, come in for a lot of misogyny, a lot more harassment than men do, and a different kind of harassment than men mm-hmm. do. So if you look at the studies on women journalists and uh, women politicians, the kind of harassment they get tends to be threats of bodily harm, rape, death threats, threats to their family, their friends, so physical threats, which of course is very, very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Men's tend to be threats to their reputation, it's calling them a liar, saying mm-hmm. they're not good at their jobs. Also, not great, you don't want to experience that. It's a very different kind of harassment. Um, so women experience a lot more of that. Women also experience a lot more of things like in the online dating space, um, persistent contact after you said you're not interested. Lots of women have experienced that. Mm. Now, there are some reasons why I understand some men do that, but we'll talk about that in a sec. Mm. Um, sexually explicit messages and images that were not requested or asked for or desired in any way. Um, being called slurs, names, um, physical threats of harm, you know, all that kind of stuff is much, much higher for women, extremely much higher for women, particularly women of colour, particularly members of the LGBTQ community as well, um, and particularly younger women. So anything from 18 to sort of 45 is the really big um, cohort of women experiencing a lot of this in online dating, yeah. also everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a number of things going on. So in online dating, men can be very frustrated by the experience because women tend to get a lot more matches than men. They're more selective in who they match with. So they select less. Men swipe on a lot of women. And so women get more matches. They also get more answers to their messages. Mm-hmm. Men send out an awful lot of very short first messages, things like, hey, what's up? Mm-hmm. Um, and don't get an awful lot of answers. And sometimes it feels, and they talk about it in the qualitative research about how they're kind of, there's a void. There's just no response. Nobody finds them attractive. It's quite anxiety inducing. And sometimes when they are having a conversation and then it drops off or if someone doesn't reply, they'll push to try and just get any answer. Like, is there a human out there kind of thing, which is kind of understandable. However, they don't think about how women are experiencing that on the other side of it. And they might be saying innocuous things, but often they're not. Often it gets quite aggressive or sexual or or things like that. Mm. And that's really problematic for women. Um, The rise of misogyny in general, I think, like we see things like the incel communities have grown substantially over the years. Every time there's an attack offline that's associated with them, they grow again. The you might explain grows. what an incel yeah. is yeah. because a lot of people will have heard that word but don't know what, don't it, know is. what it is. Yeah. yeah. So incels are, they self-identify as involuntary celibates. They would like to be having a sexual relationship with someone, but they think nobody wants to sleep with them um, or nobody wants to have sex with them. and they often get kind of groomed into these communities. It might start out with misogyny light, move into more extreme misogyny, and then into incel communities. It is a process of radicalization. They are radicalized groups. Mm-hmm. Um, they operate in very similar ways to, um, in terms of the language and the way that they're radicalized to jihadi groups, right-wing, white supremacist mm-hmm. groups, alt-right groups. Um, it's a violent subculture it's also an extremely nihilistic subculture it's really really dark so other the difference between them and other radicalized groups is other groups are like we are the best everybody else is terrible so Mm -hmm. if it's white supremacy if you have white people are the best everybody else should be gotten rid of incels are everybody is terrible 
everyone should be a member of the exit. And, and women in particular. And women in particular. particular. And there yeah. are full rhetoric around women. It's just appallingly violent and dark God. and demeaning. Um, and they are growing yeah. um, as a group. And hard to police, I'd imagine. Very hard to police. Yeah. And hard to... In some ways, it can be easier to get people out of that community, I think, than others. Because people... One of my students at the moment is doing some research on people who de-radicalize themselves or remove themselves from communities and it's often that they need a partner yeah and that's enough to kind of draw them out a, a good woman a good woman takes them out of it yeah. but yeah. do you think because of covid and with some of the stuff that we've seen in america the QAnon conspiracy theories and all of these that incels really grew during the covid pandemic because you had a lot of young males in their bedrooms very isolated looking for something very often online dating looking to attach to yeah mm. something to attach to so do you think that that could be why there's been a rise and now that the world is coming back somewhat to normality that i will ease off or do you are you what are you concerned or, or? it's hard to know whether it'll ease off now um i think that is some of the people are online more when you're online more you're going to encounter more everything there's more potential to be radicalized if you're already in a very vulnerable space for that mm-hmm. um the rise of some prominent misogynists doesn't help with that yeah um yeah. but also a lot of things like incels the alt-right white supremacy they're all quite interlinked they don't exist separately in vacuums they're very tightly interwoven um that idea that you know the alt-right and white supremacists also really believe that men are the leaders and the women should be subservient. Like there's not, they're not that far removed from incels. Um, and the QAnon conspiracy is a really fascinating one because it's like a meta conspiracy. It incorporates yeah. so many other conspiracies. Whatever your existing conspiracies that you believe in or new ones that you would like, they all slot into <laughs> yeah, it somewhere. They do, Conveniently. Yeah. 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 We had a fantastic speaker our master's course and um, last year professor mia bloom who talked about it as almost like a quasi-religion where there's certain beliefs yeah. mm-hmm. and not even everyone who subscribes to some QAnon things believes all the things about QAnon. they just believe certain aspects of it mm-hmm. and it's things like globalists and the jews taking over the world fit into it white supremacy fits into it there's so many different aspects of it that whatever your particular flavor of conspiracy theories that you like you mm-hmm. will find it in QAnon. Um, and it's it's something that's quite new that we haven't really seen before, and it's quite pervasive. It did seem to rise a bit over COVID, and um, from the figures I've seen, I think it has sort of stabilized yeah. to a degree. Um, but it's concerning that so many people buy into that very wild set of beliefs because yeah. they are quite quite wild. Yeah. And has your research found in relation to what? Porn and violent porn in particular, that easy access to it um, has impacted relationships. So there actually isn't too much evidence to show that at all. Um, There is very little evidence to show that violent porn impacts on relationships or people's mental health um, or, you know, anything like that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot. it's, It's one of those topics that's quite moral panicky. And, and there's quite a few of those. And I know from some of the questions that you're going to ask me, we have a few more of those covered. Yeah. Uh, so, so for anyone who doesn't know what a moral panic is, um, these have been going on since the beginning of 
history. You know, Plato had a bit of a moral panic about writing because it would cause forgetfulness in the minds of men. Yeah. You write things down, you won't be able to remember things anymore. Um, there's been moral panic about the radio. A lot of the headlines that you see now about social media, phones, etc., were exact replicas of those of the radio. People don't talk to each other anymore. People are caught up in this fantasy world and they're not living in reality anymore. Kids aren't doing their schoolwork anymore. They're just focused on this stuff. Mm. Uh, there were headlines about dime store novels causing boys to kill, which are very reminiscent of video games causing yes. boys to kill. Yeah. There's been so many of these moral panics. So it's when a new technology comes in and we can blame all of society's ills on it mm. instead of looking at complex things that are going on with people. Mm. Um, and so pornography is one that has a lot of moral panic associated with it. Pornography has been around for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, the evidence suggests that it doesn't necessarily have an impact on most people. Like most things, most people are absolutely fine using social media, pornography, lots of different Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For some vulnerable people, it can be more problematic. So some people might use it as an escape from things in their lives that they'd like people would use drugs to escape something negative in their lives or alcohol, and they might use it excessively or problematically. But most people, it doesn't seem to be having any particular negative effect. And what about social media then and the impact it can have on women and girls? There are some studies that indicate that there may be more negative impacts on females, that they're looking for more from their interactions on social media than perhaps men and boys are and they're they're really negatively impacted and can lead to depression all sorts of eating disorders uh, low self-esteem i think that a lot of the more recent very very good quality research looking at mental health and social media shows that there's pretty much on average no effect mm -hmm. and for some people who are more vulnerable it can exacerbate things that are already going on but there's certainly no evidence so far that social media causes eating disorders, causes depression, causes anxiety. We do know that all of those things, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, et cetera, mental health issues in general are on the rise, but they are not simple problems. They're systemic problems. If you look at the society we live in, if you look at the financial system, cost of living, insecurity of housing, insecurity of jobs, like the kind of things they're going to be facing into in the future. They can see how unstable things are. Political rhetoric, the misogyny that's on like there's so many things mm -hmm. that are problematic about the world. And young people are quite tuned into a lot of this stuff. Um 
And it I suppose, is not amazing. I, I suppose mm. too, Nicola, as well, when it comes to social media, all of these things that are problematic for people and very complex, and you're correct and right, you know, mm. mental health is certainly on the rise, and we know that. But they can find their tribe. Yeah. So, like, I, I saw recently um, the parents of, of a girl who had an eating disorder, and um, because of the tribe that she found online, she unfortunately ended up, you know, being very bad, and eventually she died from her eating disorder. And I suppose they, first of all, one of the first parts of grief is anger and hitting out. So they're hitting out with social media. But when you break it down, it makes sense. But we can't deny that mm. social media does allow people to find a tribe. Like, and, and that's, that's it's good in one way, mm-hmm. because if you're somebody that has a particular interest, nobody yeah. else in your area has it. Like if you're somebody that likes to play the trumpet and nobody else plays the trumpet, you can find some trumpet players. Which is great. Which is brilliant. Yeah. But then if but, your ideas are bolstered yes, by yes. others, yeah. and they're not good ideas, yeah. they're not good. Yeah. So I think it's, it's more that social media can exacerbate yeah. a problem rather than cause a problem. Yeah. Mm. Um, and for vulnerable young people in particular, it can be more problematic. So yeah. a lot of kids are quite resilient, but for vulnerable kids with, say, learning disabilities, with mental health issues, with non-supportive families who aren't keeping an eye on what they're doing, mm. they are more at risk. And there is variability in people's experiences online. So while it may not be causing mental health problems, someone with depression or anxiety who uses it in a way that doesn't make them feel supported. So, for example, yeah. we know from some research that passively browsing social media isn't really good for you um, because you're not actually getting the benefits. The benefits are interacting with people, interacting with your friends, getting social support from them. Yeah. Um, you know, that all those things that friendships bring, that's the positive of it. If you're not doing that and you're just browsing um, passively, you are looking at everybody else's curated feed, which looks fantastic. Yeah. yeah. You're not putting anything up there. So you forget that other people are curating their feed and putting the best bits up and that their life isn't perfect either. Yeah. And it can cause envy, comparison, social comparison. Upward social comparison tends to make people feel not so great about themselves. And so that can lead to reduced well-being and maybe exacerbating existing issues. And especially for tweens and teenagers who don't know what they're experiencing or feeling when they're looking at this. And they're not experienced as well with social media and how to use it and how to bring it around with it and stuff. And that's a good segue into our next question about smartphones, Mm. Nicola. You know, the whole question over what age, you know, is the right age for for kids to be given a smartphone. And it's one of those, it depends. Yeah, of course. It depends where your kid's at developmentally and in terms of how much responsibility you can give them, how much you can trust them with Mm -hmm. it. Um, I would say that, you know, a lot of parents give their kids a smartphone so that they're safer, you know, yeah. they're taking a phone with them, you can get in contact with them. You can limit the kinds of apps they have when they're younger. When they're young, you want to be co-using joint use together. So, if they're really into TikTok and they love creating the dances, do it with them, manage it with them. But you do have to give them more independence. If you just don't allow them to have technology until they're like 16, they won't have the skills to use it. They're actually much more vulnerable then if you slowly let them develop it, supervised, giving them more independence as they show that they can take responsibility. Mm. And most importantly of all, of all, the single most important thing you can do is keep the lines of communication up with them. Mm. So even if they're doing something they weren't supposed to be doing, even if you told them you're absolutely not allowed in TikTok, they went and TikTok on their friend's phone and they saw something that's really disturbed them, 
they should know they can come and talk to you yeah. about it and that they won't get in trouble. Mm. That the most important thing is their safety and their well-being. And you're not just going to ground them and take their phone. Because yeah. then they're never going to tell you anything. Yeah. And then they're ruminating on this awful thing they saw. They don't understand it. They can't make sense of it. They don't know how to cope with it. They don't learn from that to bring it into other situations that might happen. Yeah. So yeah. you're really missing a big learning opportunity. But most importantly, you know, talk to your child before they get this smartphone. And people are drawing up contracts with their kids yes. in relation to the use of the smartphone. Yeah, and I think that's clever. a good idea. Yeah, yeah, it is a good idea because it lays out clearly what the expectations are. You also have to remember that you are modeling behavior for your kids. Mm. So if you're saying to them, now you're not allowed to be on the phone at the dinner table, you're not allowed to take your phone to bed, you're not allowed to use it before bed, um, you can only use it to play games for like an hour a day, and then you're constantly on your phone all day. They're going to see you as a hypocrite. Kids yeah. do not yeah. like hypocrites. I'm really conscious of that. Actually. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. so it's not that you can't be on your phone. You have to. A really good way that I heard described um, was to set a contract between you and your child. So mm. they see you on your phone for ages. For them not to give out to you, but to say, "Mind you, you've been on your phone for a while. Yeah. Does that feel good? Like, would you like to take a break from it? Maybe we can play together for a bit." <laughs> Can you imagine you're a little one saying that? Absolutely, yeah, I can. I can yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think from my perspective when it comes to phones, because of the work I do, mm. some of the really negative things I see about phones is the grooming of young children online and to do recruitment organised crime gangs. And what I often see is parents that don't know how to use technology. Yeah. So if they don't understand the, the vulnerability of the child, then that contract, that's all lovely. All yeah, yeah. Even. But in the places that I walk, I very often see a whole different thing. I see young people being given phones by elders who are in gangs who may not be that much older than them. Yeah. Going back to the tweens, yeah. they might only be 14 or 15 year olds. So given a foreigner phone, for example, mm -hmm. um, because they're being used to transport drugs mm -hmm. and guns yeah. and all these different kinds of things. So um, in that regard, we do have some issues in Ireland yeah. around social media because sometimes what they do is they see young people for example if they're on instagram and they say something like nobody loves me or no friends yeah. or whatever they will reach out to that person yeah. Yeah. and they will pretend sometimes they pretend they're girls and all of the things that we've spoken about before yeah. so there are some hidden harms oh, there are. Um, for, yeah. for certain um people within our communities and also just to say it's not just in uh, deprived community sometimes it's in homes where the parents are time poor mm -hmm. it's not just about poverty yeah. mm -hmm. it's about parents who may be too busy with work and all that yeah. kind of thing and there are apps that they are not even aware of exist yeah. you yeah. know that i was told about one recently and i was like oh, i never heard of it none of us heard of it you know and, it's, and you were it's on just terrifying yeah and i hadn't heard of it it yeah. moves so quick and they're very uh, i suppose you know, tweens and teenagers, they lie, you know, <laughs> we forget well, they're, how they're easy it is. assert their independence, yeah. aren't they? And so they don't want you tracking every single thing they do. And yeah. there's, a, there's a certain amount of like illicit joy that comes from tricking your parents. Oh, gotcha. It's like most kids do that too. Yeah. You have yeah. to expect that. Yeah. And if you just come crushing down on it, they'll never tell you anything. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's really a balance to be found. And I'm, I'm Keep very aware open. that I'm talking about kids in a privileged position of yeah. parents who can who are around. Who care, who are yeah. around, who have yeah. time to be yeah. around, and who understand how these things work. Mm. Um, the most vulnerable kids are the, the kids who don't have parents who care, who are neglectful, or who don't have time, or who are vulnerable in other ways, kids with learning disabilities, no, um, neurodivergence. Or neurodivergence. Yeah. They, 
miss some of the social cues. They're not quite as clued in to things that can go wrong, maybe less aware of the, sort of, of the potential negative consequences of actions and stuff. Yeah. And they really, really need more support and more help. And I think when you can't rely on, say, parents or guardians in a situation like that, that's where we really are hoping for social media companies to be doing a lot to try and prevent some of this behavior. And maybe bring it into the schools early. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. it would make sense, wouldn't it? A lot is interesting. I was, uh, had a researcher come in and give a talk to my certificate in cyberpsychology class the other night, um, Tiana Milosevic, Dr. Tiana Milosevic from DCU. She's in the Anti-Bullying Center. And she was doing research with children to find out what sort of interventions around cyberbullying in particular would be useful. Mm. And she said that a lot of the kids' feedback was that, you know, the way that adults talk about cyberbullying doesn't really make sense to them. It's, yeah. it's like old people's talk. <laughs> it's not, you know, they talk about drama. They don't talk about cyberbullying. And the way things are framed doesn't really work for them. Yeah. And so she was making the point that you, you need kids involved in the research yeah. from the very beginning to mm. find out what's going on for them, what are the important things. Because mm. Facebook had given them a scenario of, you know, a group of friends, a group of girls, where three of the girls went out without one of the girls and they tagged her in the photograph to show they were out and that she wasn't mm. there. And they said, this is a really common thing that happens. Yeah. And when she went to the kids, they were like, yeah, it's not really realistic. <laughs> so <laughs> it, does, it doesn't really bother us. Yeah. Actually, speaking to that whole youth voice thing, um, there's a collective of organisations on the north side of Dublin called Get the Message Out. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another way is the hashtag yeah. and uh, I've recently been doing some work with them and we've decided that we're going to have young people ambassadors so we're going to have an advisory group of young people because Brilliant. just like that like I said to them looking between us all we're about 500 years old yeah we haven't a clue yeah and and I suppose the reality is like for young people being online is a community so yeah. when we were young people when we were teenagers we found our tribe and we went and we hung out at the promenade or mm-hmm. whatever but for them being online is their community. So yeah. we do need to That's have new voices. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And there are huge benefits. And from we it. have to accept it. Yeah. And almost or just respect it. Yes. Yeah. Well. And, and we and also listen. we have to listen to them and, and we listen. also have to yeah. show them we understand that there are benefits from yeah. it. If all we're doing is trying to scare them, they'll be like, Well, they don't know what we're doing. Online. Yeah. And yeah. we also have to show interest in what we're doing. So you get yeah. a lot of parents are very dismissive of what their kids are doing. Oh, that silly thing that you're doing. That's you know, if you're doing a thing you're really interested in and people are just like, oh, that thing, but they're not going to come and talk to you about mm-hmm. it. Like, we all have hobbies or TV shows that we watch that we know are ridiculous mm-hmm. sometimes uh, and that are kind of a waste of time, but we enjoy them, so they're not a waste of time. So if your kids are really enjoying some unboxing videos and you yeah. do not understand why... I love them. Yeah. So talk to the kids about yeah. why they're interesting or just, you know... And just be on interested. And, and, and just keep... Talking to them and keep those yeah, lines of communication yeah. and start really young. The earlier, oh, yeah. the better. Like if it's yeah. if it's if they're not super young now, start now. If they're five, start now. If they're two, start now. You can start talking about things like consent really young. Yeah. If you don't want to hug Granny, you don't have to hug her today. That's fine. That's yeah. Bodily yeah. yeah. You can talk about things like well, ah. you're watching the TV together. Do you think what's on there is real? Yeah. How do you think the actors feel about having to act and pretend to be something? How does that feel? Because then when Years later, you're having these conversations all the way through and they start looking at porn. They understand that the people on there are acting mm-hmm. and that they may not feel like they're expressing on there. And so you can have yeah. conversations at a much deeper level. In terms of legislation, do you think there's any merit in bringing in legislation 
to kind of set out when a child should be handed a phone, you know, if, the, if, if phones, smartphones should be banned under the age of 15, for example. Is that realistic? No. <laughs> 15, no, I don't think so. Um, 14. <laughs> I don't think, from what you've been saying though, really, yeah, I don't it's think about so. who's around them, it's about talking yeah, to it them. It really is. Yeah, and, and like being, res- being a responsible parent or guardian as well, yeah. you know? Like you can ban them to their 18, they're going to find a way to be online. Yeah. You do that. It's kind of like banning, like alcohol is banned for under 18, so we know that young people drink cigarettes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. Do Vaping. Vaping's work. a big thing now. Yeah. It's huge. What is? Vaping. Oh, for, vaping. Yeah, for yeah, teens yeah, yeah, and yeah. teenagers. Yeah, yeah, and the yeah. more you ban something, the more attractive yeah. it becomes. Mm-hmm. But also, it means you are not giving them skills when they're young to deal with the stuff they'll encounter when they're older. Yeah, because the threats and the kinds of content they'll come across when you give them freedom when they're older are a bit more extreme. They might come across violent pornography. They're probably not going to come across that while they're looking at unboxing videos on YouTube when they're kids. Mm. But if you don't start training them when they're younger to deal with things they might find and to be resilient, you're just throwing them into the cesspool when they're 15, 16 with no skills. And that's why authoritarian parents who just ban things, won't let things be discussed, have really strict rules about it. Um, Their kids are more vulnerable than parents who actually encourage their kids to explore, see the benefits of the technology um, and get the most out of it and also be aware of the negatives and be prepared for them. Yeah. So I suppose on that, just to finish up, Nicola, because I'd love your insight on this as a cyber psychologist. Um, what's your feeling on influencers? Like, do you consider yourself an influencer or do you know any influencers that you enjoy or you'd recommend? Or, or what is your overall feeling on influencers? Um, I don't consider myself an influencer. <laughs> um, I would love to put more content on social media. I follow some educator influencers yes. on Twitter and TikTok and stuff. I think they do an amazing job and I need the time and headspace yes. to do something like that. I think there's a That's space for it. Job. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, I think influencers like anything come in a spectrum of good to bad. Like there are some influencers who are really interesting people, very genuine, very authentic, you know, talking about interesting things that might help people like mental health and all sorts of stuff like that. There are some that are just fun and light, that are makeup artists, sharing skills, people enjoy it. That's really nice. And then there are some that are presenting a very highly curated, perfect life, as though it's not highly curated yeah. and perfect, that this is their real life. And for most people, again, that's not really a problem. Mm-hmm. But if you're only following influencers and celebrities and people you don't know online, it's like that passive browsing thing again. If you start to compare your life to theirs, and that's just not a healthy thing for your well-being. Yeah. So following one or two of them, ones that you connect with in some way, is absolutely fine. Um, but you know, having an exclusive diet of perfect life that's really expensive isn't really a great way to go yeah. offline or online. Yeah. Um, there's a really good researcher in TU Dublin. She's working on her PhD research looking at influencers and kids and child influencers. And um, Dr. Fardu Sultan that's doing some really interesting work in that area. So. Um, it's a fascinating area. Some of them kids yeah. are worth millions. I know, and there's no laws protecting No, just not. Influencer They're, kids, yeah. like child actors are yeah. protected under law, but these kids are very exploited. And some of yeah. them are now growing up and yeah. not liking the things their parents did with them and the amount yeah. of content yes. that's available yeah. about them online. And yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, there's uh, a whole backlash against it now. Really yeah. is. And I think that ties into that whole idea of parents oversharing their kids. Like we worry 
that what the kids are sharing online and then their parents are putting the ultrasound up and baby pictures yeah, in I the know. bath and every yeah, stage along the yeah, way yeah. with no consent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is, you know, the whole other yeah. episode. Coming yeah. back to that hypocrisy thing yeah. again, you I know, know. you have to be careful about what you're doing. And once kids get old enough to understand what it means to have an image online, you can start asking them if they're okay with it. Yeah. And if they want it taken down at any point, it's got to come down. Yeah. And do you worry, yeah. Sarah, about with your little one that you mm. might overshare. I, I don't think you I put don't on. really. Yeah. I, like, I think I, I maybe even on her birthday most years I might. Yeah. Just yeah. out of, oh, you know, yeah, she's so cute. Place. Yeah. Um, and it's her birthday, but, and yeah. I'm kind of conscious of that. And, yeah. and just that point you made, I remember talking to a friend of mine, it's like, they're, they're too young, obviously, to consent to that and they might not want this later on, you know, so yeah. I would be conscious of that. And even if I was, taking some photos I might have her head might be turned or something yeah. like that yeah yeah I'd definitely be conscious yeah. of it yeah, yeah. I know I know protecting her will share photographs but it's always from the behind so yeah it's just the back of their head yeah. and stuff yeah. and you can share cute stuff and you want to share with friends and family and you know families are more spread around the world now they're more dispersed yeah and to keep in contact but there are ways doing it like private groups maybe are exactly. also a way to do that yeah rather than sharing a lot of images about every single aspect of yeah. the child's life yeah yeah well dr nicola fox hamilton thank you very much thank you so much that was fascinating so interesting really enjoyed it really interesting thank you, so much having you. you can contact us on social media at real lives untold our email address is real lives untold at gmail.com and don't forget to subscribe to hear this season's episodes every wednesday you can listen on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.